Uh, good morning, church. Our reading for today is from 1 Peter 1, verse 3 to 16. One feather one, verse three to sixteen. If you're already there, okay, we'll start. First Peter one, verse three to sixteen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy had begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that faded not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be refilled in the last time. Whereat ye, ye greatly rejoice, thou now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the, the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perisheth, thou it will be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love in whom thou now ye see him not. Yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation and prophets have inquired and search diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which, is, which was in them did signify when it testified before, before and the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that preach the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, with things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, get up the loins of, the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former last in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. This is our scripture for this morning. 
We'll be in the book of 1 Peter together this morning, and I might encourage you to just grab a piece of paper if you have one. Drop that in at Deuteronomy chapter 31. We'll be over to Deuteronomy later in the sermon, but we'll take the bulk of our time together from 1 Peter chapter number 1. Throughout the history of our church, each year I have intentionally started the church year with a walk through spiritual habits, or another word for them is spiritual disciplines. Uh, Typically, we will spend three weeks on this each year, and this year it's no different. Today, we will start our series on spiritual disciplines uh, with an emphasis on the importance of the Word of God in your life. And so I hope that this morning you'll pay attention as we spend time in the Word. There are a couple of verses in 1 Peter 1 that I would like to focus on. However, I believe very much that no verse in Scripture sits as an island all by itself. In fact, there is a context that surrounds each verse uh, that gives it uh, significance. And I think that this morning, by taking the time to walk through 1 Peter chapter 1, it might help us to see how important this is for our lives. So I hope you've got 1 Peter chapter 1, and then also a piece of paper over at Deuteronomy chapter 31. The Word of God is whole, and it is important. It's the very breath of God. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce down between the bone and the marrow, between your soul and your spirit. You try and get down the difference between your soul and your spirit. Theologians have argued over that for hundreds and thousands of years, what's the difference between the soul and the spirit. And yet the Word of God is so sharp that it's able to get down into those minute details. The Word of God is powerful, and it will change your life. As we come into 1 Peter chapter 1, I won't read the first two verses. I'll just let you know a little bit of historical what's going on as Peter writes this epistle. Peter was writing to a group of believers. These are Gentile believers that were under great persecution. The time frame was uh, shortly after Rome had burned to the ground. In fact, historically we know Nero, the emperor, had actually ordered that the city be burned. And this is his own city. And you'd think, why would, a, why would a king burn down his own city? And the reason, maybe you can understand some of this, is for greed. Uh, if he wants to do new building projects in an area and upscale a neighborhood, the easiest way to do that is burn out what's per- currently there. A, a very underhanded, wicked thing that he did had the city burned so that he could rebuild it better. That plan backfired on him because when the city burned, a lot of people died. The people in the city were angry. How is it that this city could catch fire? And so Nero did plan B, blamed it on the Christians. There's this new group of believers, this new religion that's just popped up, and so they became the easy target for him. He kicked the Jews out of, uh, out of Rome. We know that from Aquila and Priscilla having had to leave. And then Paul finds them in Corinth. And then also we know from history that the Christians were run out of the area and began to become persecuted in a mighty way. Peter is now writing to Gentile believers. He names the places that they're from, Bithynia, Cappadocia, uh, Galatia. 
And so you can think modern-day Turkey is who he's writing to, these Gentiles that are in that area. And as he writes to them, he writes to them knowing that they're going through a great persecution. It would be easy, if you're a Gentile person, having followed a new religion, it would be easy to avoid persecution by simply renouncing that Christianity that you've just followed. Maybe you would tell your friends and your family, you know it was a mistake for me to follow. I'm just going to believe secretly. I'll quietly believe in my heart. God still saved me, but I don't have to be open about it. Because if I'm open about it, then I'm going to face persecution. And Peter writes to this effect. We pick up our reading in verse number 3. As Peter writes to these believers some words of encouragement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Quickly, blessed, glory be to God. Blessed be our Heavenly Father who has blessed us in so many rich ways. Those are the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us of all heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, our Heavenly Father has blessed us, and so we return blessing, not because we need, not because He needs our blessing, but because we know that these blessings come from Him, and so we return praise back to Him. And He says, I praise Him. And in the closing words of verse 3, He has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Christ's resurrection is the first fruit we will come along behind. He raised from the dead because He raised from the dead, so also we will raise from the dead. And as I meditated upon this this week, I thought about what would it be like to be a Christian in that time facing perhaps my own death because I'm a follower of Jesus. Can you imagine? Maybe they've arrested you and you're in prison and they've set the date tomorrow. They're going to cut your head off. Or as they did with some of them, tie them to a post while the tide comes in. And can you imagine if you are the day before your martyr's death, can you imagine knowing tomorrow... The waves will lap higher and higher and higher. And I meditated upon this this last week, and I thought, how? How would I face that? And over and over throughout history, the thousands, yea, hundreds of thousands of martyrs that have gone to their death, over and over, they don't scream. They don't fight. They give testimony what is it that gives life to that? I thought to myself, if, if, if I'm about to go to a stake and be burned to death, my wife at the next stake, what would I say to her? There's something that changes your mind as you approach that moment. For if you see death is but the door through which I will walk so that I can spend eternity with Jesus, which is far better even so be it, Lord. And so here, Peter writes, you see, our Heavenly Father is to be blessed, and He has begotten us again unto a lively hope 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For Christ rose again from the dead. I will be but asleep. And when I wake, I will be in the face of my Savior, which is far better. He continues on, verse 4. He's begotten us. He's brought us into His family. Verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. You see, whatever inheritance that comes from your family is corruptible. Rust will destroy it. Moths will eat it. Thieves will break through and steal. But the inheritance that comes from Him is incorruptible. Unable to be defiled. And it does not fade away. And it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only do I get an eternal life, I get an eternal everlasting inheritance from my heavenly Father. Oh, blessed be His name. Verse 6, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You might experience trials in this life. That's what he just said. And the word that he used for temptations there in verse 6 is the very same word that James used in James chapter 1 and verse 3. We walked through that passage some months ago. And those temptations that James explains come in very different ways. Some ways it might be a temptation that you and I think of, Satan brings sin before me and I'm tempted in that sin. Or it might take on a form of a trial in which I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Or maybe this trial is something where someone that I love and care about is going through a situation and, and I can't do anything to change it. These are the temptations that might come up in your life and I want you to hear the words that he says about them. Verse 7, the trial of your faith is much more precious than gold that perishes. Your gold that you might accumulate in this lifetime, it will perish. I don't know, maybe you heard the phrase, money talks. You ever hear that phrase? And here's what Peter said. It says goodbye. Money talks and it says goodbye. Gold perishes. It might come into your pocket, but it will go back out again. It'll come into your life, but it will end. It doesn't stay with you. But you know what does stay with you? This precious trial of your faith. And what will happen with that precious trial of your faith? See the ends of the end of verse 7. It will be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So when the Lord Jesus comes, maybe you live through this trial and the Lord Jesus returns in the rapture, or you close your eyes in death, asleep in Christ. When you open your eyes at the appearing of Jesus Christ, it does not matter how much money is in your bank account or how much gold was left in your pockets. What matters is the trial of your faith that you came through that He sustained you in. Oh, I hear echoes of other passages. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, and we sang some of the words of this passage. Paul says, and not only so, we glory in tribulations also, 
knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope makes us not ashamed because the love of God is spread abroad, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. What did he say in verse 3? We glory in tribulations. We will find them. Christian brother, you will find tribulations to be a precious thing, more precious than gold. It will be helpful for your spiritual life. Or maybe you'll hear the words of Romans chapter 8 as Paul writes later, and we've expounded upon this before, Romans 8 and verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Those problems, trials, temptations, afflictions in this life are nothing to be compared against what is to come. In the day to come, in His glorious appearing, these things will be presented as glory and honor and praise. I will look upon them as precious things that God brought into my life. So don't look at trials as things that are terrible for you. Look at them as precious things. There's a purpose in them. I hear people say this. I go through counseling with people a lot. And I hear people say, God does everything for a reason. And so often when I hear them say that, the leaning and meaning that they place upon it is something like, God, let this come into my life so that I can have something greater. Almost as if, God, let my wife leave me and now I am found myself divorced so that I can go find a better wife. That's not the meaning. He didn't let this come into your life so you can get a better bank account or a bigger car or a nicer house. That's not the meaning. Oh, I will find this precious. Why? Because it causes me to lean against my Savior. I need Him. He is the greatest treasure of my heart. So when something happens in my life, a trial, a temptation, when it comes up in my life, think with me, a martyr burning at the stake. God brought it into His life for a purpose. Yes. Not so that He can have a bigger bank account, but so that He can find Jesus. That should be the greatest treasure of your heart, friend. I want to be with Jesus. I want to lean against Him. I want to find Him to be my treasure, not stuff. Verse 8, For whom, having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see Him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You see, the greatest blessing that God can give you is the salvation of your soul. The greatest. It doesn't get any better than that. The single greatest blessing of your soul is salvation. For when we were yet sinners, we were at enmity against God, and yet He sent His Son to die on the cross for us so that we could be made right with Him. That's our salvation. We get to be made right with God because He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for us. And so the greatest treasure that I could ever receive, the greatest blessing I could ever receive from 
God the Father is my salvation. Now look at verse 10, because he's going to help us to see how big a deal this salvation is. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed, that's the prophets, unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Pause. Do you realize how great your salvation is? That for thousands of years, prophets in the Old Testament spoke of this, not knowing when it would come? They searched diligently, it said. Searched diligently. I can just imagine as Isaiah writes, and with his stripes were healed. As his heart yearned for that day. Oh, God, as he writes, oh God, I don't know when this will happen or how it will happen. And he searched diligently, and Jeremiah calling to me, I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. And yet, when will this happen? Zechariah, he will be pierced. David writes, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And they look forward with anticipation to the day. And Paul, uh, Peter writes here, and it's come to us, the greatest treasure ever, the greatest blessing ever. Salvation has come to us. And then he tosses in at the end of verse 12. Listen to these words, which things the angels desire to look into. Have you ever had a big box? Have you ever had a big box? And you've got a little kid that wants to know what's inside the box. Have you, ever, have you ever had that happen? Greatest Christmas ever for me when I was a little boy. I was in grade one. And our neighbor, the, the, the guy that lived next door, he worked, his job was at the city dump. Now, I'm going to tell you, the city dump in America is very different from the city dump in Port Moresby. Very different. People are not allowed to roam around on the city dump. People in America throw things away that you and I would put to use for a very long time. And this guy, his job was he drove the big crusher that goes across the top of the dump. But as he drove that crusher across the top, he could see that there were things that were valuable. And so he would collect those valuable things Best Christmas ever, grade one. That guy gave my mom and dad a box of toys. That box was this big. Me and my brothers, we were only about that tall, but we wanted to look inside the box and see what was inside the box. I'm sorry, my dad worked really hard and did really nice things for us, and my memory is that the greatest gift, the greatest, greatest Christmas ever was trash box. I love that trash box. We peered into it. Can you hear the words? Peered into it. And I can he hear those same words being 
spoken by Peter, which things the angels desire to look into. What's he talking about? Salvation of your soul. The salvation of your soul is something that the angels do not receive for themselves. You say, why is that? Well, think back when God created the heaven and the earth and he created the angels. There was one of those archangels that rebelled against God. That was Isaiah 7. And and he, Lucifer, rose up and said, I will be like the Most High. And with him, millions of angels followed. You and I now call them demons. They followed after Lucifer, and God did one single thing to them. Banishment. So can you imagine, as the angels stood by and watched as Adam took the fruit in the garden? You see, God had said, you can eat of all the trees, but not that one. And Adam and Eve ate of that one. I can just imagine as all the angels stood by and thought to themselves, guys, you are humans. You have no idea what you've just done to yourselves. And God stepped into the garden that day, and instead of banishment forever, God made a promise to Adam, I will send one who will redeem your soul. And I can just imagine as the angels stood off on the side and went, what? We've never seen this before. This doesn't make sense to us. And I can just imagine the unfolding of those prophecies throughout the Old Testament as one after another was presented, and then the gospel is unfolded in the lifetime of Peter. This is what it looks like to receive Christ as your Savior. This is what salvation looks like. Peter says this is a gorgeous thing, and I can just imagine as the angels desire to look into this. It confounds their minds. Peter says, brothers and sisters, you might be facing any different kind of trial in your life. And yet, God has given you, the very fact that you are a brother or sister, God has given you a great treasure called salvation. It's one thing for us to give mental assent to that fact. It's one thing for you to say, yes, I received salvation That's a great gift. It's a totally different thing for you to act upon it. You might ask, how do I act upon salvation? And the answer is found in verse 13. This is where I've wanted to go in this passage, but I think it's so important that you've seen the background leading to it. You see, your salvation is precious. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Read verse 13 with me. Wherefore, the word wherefore, because of everything that I've just said, there's a reason that I've said all of these things. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Pause. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's a phrase that goes back to the days when men wore robes. I'm thankful that we wear trousers now. I'm so tempted to say a whole lot right there, but I don't want to detract from the statement. Gird up the loins of your mind. 
In the days of men wearing robes, they needed to go to work or they needed to go to battle. Gird up the loins of your mind. So they would gird up their robes. And what they would do is they would take the robe, wrap it around their legs, pull it up, almost like a nappy, tuck it into their belt, one side, other side, pull it tight. Now they've got a giant nappy on. But their legs are now free to be able to move quickly. They can work, they can run, they can fight. They don't have to worry about tripping over their own clothes. Gird up the loins of your robes. So same picture. Gird up the loins of your mind. Don't let your mind just be flowing here and there. Have intentionality with your life. Be sober. You know what the opposite of sober is, right? Drunk. Talking out of your head. Just saying things that don't have any meaning. So be sober. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And hope. Hope what? Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He already said it. Jesus is coming. And when He comes, you're going to find that the greatest treasure of your life is that God has brought into your life this trial. And so when He appears, that's going to be a good day. So gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and look forward with hope to that day. So what do you do? Now verse 14. As obedient children not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Back when you were an unbeliever, you acted a certain way, and you acted that way because you were ignorant. Ignorant means you didn't know. I know that now we say, that guy's ignorant, we kind of mean it in a derogatory way. But when he says you were ignorant, it just means literally you didn't know any better. And so you used to act a certain way, but now you're obedient children. Now you're the children of God. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there's a way that you should act. How do you act? Verse 15. But as He has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. The word conversation there is not the words that you speak. It's the lifestyle that you live. In all the different manners of your lifestyle, be holy. I'm tempted, I was tempted, to change the title of this sermon. Not the importance of the word, that's where I'm headed. But I was tempted to call this sermon, Be Holy. I think that the practical outflowing of the importance of the word is the fact that you need to be holy. So your life should be different because you are a child of God. Because, verse 16, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Verse 16 is a quote from the book of Leviticus three different times. God told His people, be holy. And being holy, He gave them ways to be holy. There are certain ways that those people of Israel were to eat. There were certain days that they were to rest. Uh, there were ways that they should act. And so he's telling them to be holy. There's idols and wicked people that they should avoid. Be holy. And he expects us, his followers, as believers, coming into 2024, he expects you to be holy. I want you to hear that, church. God expects you to be holy. Why? Because you are his. He's bought you with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body which is Christ. He paid a very high price for you. 
You should be living holy, living right. I certainly hope that you, believer, don't have a filthy mouth like the world has. I hope that you don't tell dirty jokes like the world does. I hope that you don't indulge in sinful movies and TV like the world does. I hope that you don't say sensual things to someone that isn't your spouse like the world does. I hope that you don't hide your phone's passcode like the world does. And I hope that you don't tell your children one thing and live a different way like the world does. You've been called to live holy. Church, I hope that as we come into 2024, I hope that if there's any one New Year's resolution that you would hold on to this year, it is that I would live holy. Oh, there will be moments when you fail. There will be moments, undoubtedly. But a righteous man falls seven times and he gets up again. Don't quit. One of the things that encourages me in my spiritual walk is when I'm talking to a lost person and they swear. That encourages my soul. Maybe it doesn't encourage you. I'll tell you why it encourages me. Because when I'm talking to somebody and then they swear, inevitably the person that swears follows it with, oh, I'm sorry, pastor. I always tell them the same thing. I always say, you don't have to answer to me. There's somebody else you've got to answer to. That's my answer every time. You don't have to answer to me. It's okay. But why is it that encourages my heart when someone swears and apologizes? Why is it that encourages my heart? It tells me that my life is different and they recognized it. I wonder if those people that live around you and work around you, I wonder if they recognize that you're different. I certainly hope that they do. Mortify the deeds of, the de- of your flesh. Fight sin, church. Fight it. The book of Romans chapter 8 says, be killing the flesh. Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Be killing your fle- flesh. Or as the Puritans used to say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Put off those deeds of the flesh for they will grab you and hold on to you. And they will drag you down. Oh, friend, Fight sin. Fight it. Be holy. Follow after our Heavenly Father who saved your soul. The greatest gift that you could ever receive. Salvation of your soul. Do something with it. Don't just wallow around and say, well, I can just live in my sin. That's what those believers that Peter's writing to, that's what they could have done. They could have disengaged from Christianity and just gone back to living like they used to. And Peter says, don't do that. You have the greatest treasure. You have salvation of your soul. So live like it. Be holy. And church, I ask of you this morning, be holy. How do you do that? You'll never defeat the flesh by the strength of the flesh. It won't happen. You won't muscle your way through it. You'll never be able to do that. So how do you do it? You do it by being in Christ. It's a mindset. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Galatians 2, verse 20. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So how am I going to overcome the deeds of the flesh? How am I going to overcome sin in my life? 
It's by being in Christ. Don't you know, Romans 6, 4, don't you know that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into His death, and you now have been resurrected with Christ to walk in a new way. If any man be in Christ, 1 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Friend, if you, can, if you try to defeat the flesh and the deeds of the flesh through the power of the flesh, you'll never be able to do it. You'll continue to fight it and fight it and fight it, and one day you'll just give up because you're tired of fighting. But instead, if you can renew your mind, I'm in Christ. I was buried with Christ in baptism. I've been raised to walk in newness of life. I am a different person. I now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. I'm following after Jesus. He's the one living through me. I'm not doing this on my own. Friend, I can tell you there will be victory to be had. And listen closely. If you continue to play with sin, one of three things will happen. One of three things will happen if you continue to play with sin. I hope this one happens. I hope. You keep playing with sin, God will count you as His Son according to the book of Hebrews, and He will chastise you. That's a terrifying thought. That God would punish you for your sin in the flesh. In other words, you might get sick and might even die. If you are His Son, He has every right, and a loving Father should punish His Son. So the words of the book of Hebrews. Or second thing that might happen, and I hope this never happens to you. According to the book of Romans, chapter 1, He might just give you over to your sin. He might just let you have it. You want that sin so much, He'll let you have it. He'll give you over to a reprobate mind. He'll let you have it and let it run its course. Oh, this is a terrifying thought. That's worse than option number one. Or option number three. One, He'll trouble your soul and chastise you for it. Or two, He'll give you a reprobate mind and give you over to your sin. Or three, and perhaps this is what you need, for this is His grace. He might just expose your sin in a way that's terribly embarrassing. And when He exposes your sin, you might find that to be terribly painful, but friend, I want to tell you it's exceedingly gracious. For He did not leave you to your sin. And He did not take you out of this life. Instead, He let your sin be exposed so that you would have an opportunity in His grace to get things right with Him and those that you've, you've sinned against. Friend, these are the options that face you. And so before I go further, I want you to hear me say as your pastor, I love you, and I want to warn you, don't play with sin. It will complicate your life in ways that you would never imagine. You will never, we've said it before, you will never regret not sinning. You'll never regret that. And if there is sin that you cannot root out, but you're listening this morning and you say, I want 2024 to be a different year for me. I want to encourage your heart this morning. 
We have a pastoral staff that would love to walk through this with you. You don't have to carry it alone. For something that I've found, my years in ministry, one of the most glorious things that I've found is that sin loves to live in the dark. And the moment you expose sin in the light, it shrivels up. Oh, friend, I want to encourage you this morning. Confess it. Forsake it. Fight it. Fight your sin. And that brings me to this topic of spiritual discipline. Spiritual discipline. If I'm going to have victory over sin in my life, if I'm going to have victory over the flesh in my life, I need to strengthen my spiritual discipline. I need to have a change in the way that I think, in the way that I act. You know what the opposite of no discipline is, right? The opposite of no discipline? Just sit around and eat donuts all the time. Have some cake and eat it too. Second helping, please. Next thing I know, I won't be running any marathons. I won't be doing any walk for life. I'll just be sitting over on the side, getting obese. Spiritually, you need to have discipline. The spiritual discipline that I want to look at today is the importance of the Word of God in your life. Next week, the importance of prayer. The following week, the importance of the church body. Today, the importance of the Word of God. Scripture has great profit for your life. The book of Ephesians tells us that Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for the church so that, and this is Ephesians 5.26, why did Christ give Himself for the church? That He might sanctify and cleanse it. And how does He do that cleansing? With the washing of water by the Word. You want victory over sin? The sanctifying work of the Word of God as it washes over your soul and cleanses you, friend. This is a primary spiritual discipline. The Word of God should be doing its work in your life, and it cannot do its work in your life if you're not spending time in it. Follow with me some thoughts here. First, uh, sorry, Psalms chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. You will be blessed. Did you hear the word? You will be blessed. And please don't think financially blessed, for that gold perishes. It goes away. But blessed, your life will be changed. Your life will be different. Think with me, and I think if I can just use some general phrases, I think that every single one of us can put them to specific names within our own heads. General phrases. Can you imagine with me the turmoil that happens within a family as it's found out that dad's been having an affair and that there's children that are being born in another family because of what dad's been doing? And the Heartache that comes out of that. I will say, far from blessed. Far from blessed. But you know what blessed is? Is when dad has been leading the home and bringing mom and the kids to church faithfully year after year after year. And when they lay dad to rest in a coffin at the front of the church and the kids come by and they put their hand on the coffin and they lean down and kiss dad's face, they say, blessed This man led us to Jesus. 
Blessed. That's what blessed needs to be in your life. Blessed. And how does he get that? How do you get blessed? Not by sitting in the seat of the scornful. Not by walking with wicked men. But instead by finding delight in the law of the Lord. By the way, moms, I say dad. If dad's not that one, oh moms, be the one. For your children will rise up. Psalm 31. Proverbs 31. Your children will rise up and call you blessed. If dad's not filling the role, mom, stick with it. In Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate thereon day and night. Thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. This is not some kind of prosperity gospel magic pill that if you read the Bible, your bank accounts will be filled. That's not what it's saying. You want to have true success in life? Spend time in the Word. Meditate upon the Word. Let it not depart from your mouth. Observe the things that are written therein. And can I say this? Don't give up. Don't give up. As we come into 2024, I love the fact that today I get to preach this one day before January the 1st. I love that. You know why? Because I'm getting ready to tell you, start reading the Word tomorrow morning. Just hang on, I'll get there. That's going to be its own section altogether. But I love the fact that we get to say this every year. And I don't have to say it on January the 2nd and say, go back and start yesterday. No, I'm going to tell you... Start it tomorrow morning. And you might say things like, but pastor, I've tried and I've done this in the past and I made it three weeks into the year and I, it just fell off. Can I tell you, don't quit. Don't give up. Becky's starting me and her on a diet tomorrow. I'm not excited about it at all. I got a little food baby. It's been growing the last couple of months. Close to five months, Benicia. Don't say anything about my food, baby. Becky's going to start us on a diet tomorrow, and her goal is that some of this is going to go away. I'm not going to like it. But I can look back. Could you imagine if I told her how many diets we've done in our lifetime? Still, it always comes back. Every time it comes back. Why are we even bothering with this? And yet, you know what we're going to do tomorrow? Start it again. Don't give up. Because you tried in the past, let me just share some of my own experience, church. I'll share some of my own experience. When I was a small boy, I remember watching my dad read the Bible. And and you can ask him how many times he's read through the the Bible. I bet you it's 40 plus. I'm not going to put him on the spot, but dad was faithful. I remember as a small boy, I'd watch dad read. And and as a small boy, I want to be like dad. And I would try. I remember being a small boy, grades four, five, six. I would try. My pastor would say, read your Bible. He would say it all the time. And around grade seven, I decided I'm going to do it. I'm going to read all the way through the Bible. And, and in that first year, I made it about a third of the way through. I didn't make it all the way through the whole Bible. I made it about a third of the way through. And then in grade eight, I said, I'm going to try it again. And I just picked up where I'd left off, and I kept on going. And, and then in grade eight, I made it another third of the way through, and then I fell off. And then grade nine, I'm going to do this. And i got to tell you, by the time I made it to the end of grade nine, I had finished the Bible front to back, and I'd read it all the way through. 
I didn't do it all in one year. It took me three years to do it. Then grade 10, 11, 12, I continued to try, and each year I tried. I got into my college years, my uni years, and I got to say, very hectic schedule, very stressful lifestyle, and I was trying. We got married halfway through my university. I don't recommend that for anybody. We had two kids when I graduated university. I don't recommend that either. Very stressful life, and I got to say, my Bible reading, even though I had every intention, and I would keep coming back, I just did not stick with it. But in 2002, the end of the year, 2002, Becky and I had a heart-to-heart conversation about this. And we said, we're about to be full-time in ministry for the rest of our lives, if God would allow us. We need to make this a priority in our lives. And I'm happy to tell you that this past Friday, we finished, I think it's our 20th time through, together. On Friday, we finished, finished our reading through the Scripture again this year. I wonder what it would have been like in 2002 if we'd have just said, you know, we've tried this how many times? And we just didn't do it. I'm glad. It's literally a part of our lives now. Like if we wake up, example, tomorrow morning, I'm waking up about 3.30, my plan already, and I'm going to be driving off at 4 o'clock. You don't need to know where I'm going to, Anita. Tomorrow I'm driving out of here. We can't get up at 2.30 and read. So guess what we're going to do on Tuesday? double read. It's already in, it's a part of us. So things happen. You can catch up. It's okay. But here's what doesn't happen. We don't wake up on a Tuesday and just go, you know, today we wanted to get an extra 20 minutes of sleep. So turn the alarm back off. No, we don't do that. We go, this is us. We're going to sit here with a cup of coffee and the Lord, and we're going to read, and we're going to read quietly, and I'm going to reach over and hold her hand through part of it, and and I'm going to make comments as I read, and she's going to make comments too. It's something that we do together, and I'm thankful for this. But it didn't happen on the first time. Friend, get back up. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep trying. As I look through the scriptures, I see a number of ways, and I'm going to walk through these very quickly. I see a number of ways that God has spoken to people throughout the ages. The first way that I see that he spoke was by decree. By decree. I won't stay on these for very long. He spoke by decree. This was Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. You might recognize this. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I don't know if you've ever meditated on that. Who was he talking to? Adam wasn't there. He's talking to himself. Let there be light. He decreed it, and it was so. And every decree of God throughout the scriptures always comes to pass. I think of Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. None can stay his hand. You will not stop God from doing his work. Who can say, what are you doing? Nobody questions God. Those are his decrees. Another way that I see God has spoken, and that's in, in personal address as he speaks to people. And he's done that throughout Scripture. Again, Genesis chapter 3 to Adam. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, God walked into the garden. Adam, where art thou? He's speaking directly to him. Or I think of the day in Matthew chapter 3, the day of Jesus' baptism, as Jesus is coming up out of the water, God speaks to the people that are there. Matthew 3 and verse 17, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. These are the... Words of God, personal address to people. He spoke also through the prophets' mouths. In fact, that's how we get the majority of the Old Testament is through the prophets' mouths. 
uh, the, the prophets, they said things. Uh, I think of Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18. This is a prophetic pointing towards Christ, but here's what he says in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and I'll put words in his mouth. He shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And then all throughout the Old Testament, God gives words to prophets, and they repeated those. Thus saith the Lord, the prophets proclaimed. These were God's words coming through the mouths of prophets. In that same Deuteronomy 18 passage, two verses later in verse 20, God gives a caution. And here's his caution. But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. That's a very big caution, as God says, don't claim to be saying things that I said when I didn't really say them. Another way to say that would be Exodus 20 and verse 7. Exodus 20 and verse 7 was, God said... Thou shalt not take my name in vain. Don't proclaim a word and say, This word came from me. Fourth one, how does God speak to people? In written form. He speaks in written form, and that's through the Bible. That's what you and I have. Come over to Deuteronomy chapter 31. I want you to see these, the development of the Word of God. I'll walk through this quickly and let you see how is it that God has given us His Word. God gave His Word to Moses. Moses was the first to write. He wrote the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses now at the end of his life in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse number 9. Moses wrote this law, delivered it unto the priests, the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel is come to appear before the Lord thy God, in the place which he shall choose, thou shalt read this law before all Israel in their hearing. I might, as I look at the Scriptures, I see that as the beginning of the form of what we now have is the Bible. As Moses writes down in verse 9, it says that Moses wrote it and he delivered it to the priests and then he gave a commandment. Every seven years this should be read to the people. Now slide your eyes down chapter 31 to verse 24. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness unto thee. So we have what is going to be called the book of the law. Joshua 1 used that phrase. Psalms 1 used that phrase. The book of the law. Moses is beginning that. Five books, those Genesis to Deuteronomy, what we call them now. They called them the Torah. He wrote them. He said, every seven years, read these to the people and keep it. Keep it at the side of the ark. Now, come over to Joshua with me. 
This is Joshua chapter 24, the end of the book of Joshua. So Joshua, Moses has died. Now Joshua has taken his place, led the nation, and now Joshua is about to die. This is Joshua chapter 24, and you'll get to see some addition to the book of the law. There's Joshua 24 and verse 26. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Don't waste your time trying to find an oak and a big stone there in Israel. The point here is that Joshua wrote these words. What were those words? The book of Joshua. He wrote them, we might say, added them to the book of the law of God. And when Joshua died, you have Genesis through to Joshua. And each one of the subsequent writers, David, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, Hosea, Micah, wrote, and those were added. The Old Testament, by the time of Christ, had already been compiled. 39 books had been put together. They'd been accepted as Scripture before Jesus was born. The people of Israel loved that, what we now call the Old Testament. They just called it the Scriptures. Today... As archaeological findings are found, we find very interesting things. The Dead Sea Scrolls are dated to the time of Jesus. And the words that are found on the Dead Sea Scrolls line up with what you and I hold as an Old Testament. In other words, what Jesus held as the Scriptures we call the Old Testament is exactly what you and I hold today, those 39 books in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or thought much about this, but when John wrote in his gospel, and he wrote things like, and Jesus said, and then he quotes Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought, how did he remember that? John wrote five chapters. John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. That's the upper room discourse. That's the night of the Last Supper as Jesus spoke to his disciples. I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'll send the Holy Spirit, he'll be a comforter unto you. And John quotes Jesus word for word and claims that he quoted him. Listen, I can't remember five sentences that somebody said to me five minutes ago, much less five chapters to write down how many years later that John wrote that. And I think of Matthew who wrote Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's the... Sermon on the Mount that Jesus spoke in Galilee, and he quoted him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You would know that passage. Matthew quotes him word for word and claims this is what Jesus said. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that. How is it that they remembered those things? But it's given to us, Jesus' own words. This is from that upper room discourse in John 14. Here's what Jesus said in John 14 and verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Do you know what that is? That's Matthew and Luke and John and Paul and and, and Peter writing 
and the Holy Spirit of God breathing the words of God through them as they write them down. You see, we hold in our hands the Scriptures, the very Word of God, the revealed knowledge, special revelation of God in our lives now. We know who God is, and we don't have to guess. And by the way, we've had this now for almost 2,000 years. No changes in it, inspired by God and preserved through the ages. How does that impact your life? How does it impact your life? Well, I would say in two ways. One, as a church body, it should impact our lives in that we would give a priority to expository preaching. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Expository preaching. That means we come to the text like we did today with 1 Peter 1, and we walk through a passage, and we find out what did the Scriptures say, and what do they mean. We don't just grab a topic and then run around with the topic. So what do the Scriptures say? We have a priority to expository preaching. And then second, it should be impacting your personal life, for the Bible will change you. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. Again, upper room, John chapter 17 and verse 17. Here's what Jesus said as He prays to the Father. He says, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. How is it that you're going to be cleansed, friend? How is it that you're going to be cleansed? You're going to be cleansed by the Word of God. God's going to be doing a work in your life and changing you through His Word. And man might have objections. Man might say things, well, that's just faith. You just believe that, and that's why it is. Well, guess what? Good news, Christian friend. Yes, it is. I'll call it a presupposition. I believe that this is the Word of God. And faith, by the way, makes my Heavenly Father happy. Hebrews 11.1, 1. faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and just six, in verse 6, five verses later, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. If you can believe that He saved your soul through sending His Son to die on the cross and raise again, you can believe that this Word is His inspired, preserved Word for you, and He can be correct in it. And it will cleanse your soul. It's good for your sanctification. So I'll be practical as we close. Two thoughts in practicality. One, here at Capital City Baptist Church, I just want to put this out there while we're speaking of the Word. And I want you to understand where we are coming from. Here at Capital City Baptist Church, we use the King James Version of the Bible. It is an excellent translation of the Scriptures. It's not, by the way, it's worth us understanding this, it's not the language in which the Bible was given. The Bible was given in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Aramaic and Greek in the New Testament. And so it had to be translated, and it was translated over 400 years ago into English as the King James Version. It was not the first English translation, and it certainly has not been the last English translation. However, it's the, it's the translation that we as a church body have chosen to use. And we use it for a number of reasons. It has standed the test of time. Throughout, throughout the years, other versions have risen to prominence NIV, ESV have risen to prominence and then fallen away as other ones come along, and yet the King James has stood there. Most of you, if you have done Scripture memorization, most of you probably did Scripture memorization in the King James. For that reason, that's what we use. I will say this, however, 
if you're using a different translation, I'm not going to be ugly at you. I'm not going to be nasty at you because you use a different translation. You might just find from time to time, however, pastor's really emphasizing a word here, and that word's not in my translation. That's why I put this on the table. That's the translation that we use. And I'm not going to be ugly about it. I'm not going to be nasty towards somebody because they use a different translation. They certainly are not sinning. Somebody is not sinning because they read a different translation. If you read out of the hymn book, it's not inspired, and you're not sinning. And you read from another translation, it might be helpful for you, and I'm not going to call you a sinner for it. Second one, second practical exhortation. You need, personally, you need to spend time reading the Word of God every day. You need to. Do you remember Ephesians 6? I don't have this verse on the board. Ephesians 6, taking on the whole armor of God, helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Do you remember what he said about the sword of the Spirit? You take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. How is it that you're going to be able to fight against the wiles of the devil? How is it that you're going to be able to fight against your flesh and the sin that's coming against you that does so easily beset you? How are you going to be able to do that? You've got to go on the offensive and use the word of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Take that up. Know it. Love it. Fight sin. Be holy as he is holy. Every year we do this, and this year is no different. At the back table, We've set out a number of Bible reading plans. There's about 300 of them out there, back there, so there's plenty to go around. Five by five by five, that's New Testament. If you've never read, you've ne if you've never tried to read your Bible before, that's a great one to start with. You'll see it at the top, five by five by five. It's five days a week, five something else, five something else. <laughs> if you read slowly, I would encourage you to grab this one. You'll get through the New Testament. If you follow this all year long, you'll get through the New Testament in one year. Another one. This is just a simple 52-week Bible reading plan. It's on a single piece of paper. Becky always asks me, please, get our Bible reading plan on a single piece of paper. I don't want to track multiple pieces. So it's a single piece of paper. It's very tight. Uh, 52 weeks. You'll go through the, read through the Bible in the whole year. This one this is just for the novelty of it, and every year I try to find one that's got some kind of novelty. This one is the historical reading plan. You'll notice it, Blue Letter Bible. Some of you are familiar with that website. Blue Letter Bible puts this one together. It's the historical reading. In other words, as you read through the Old Testament, you read through the Old Testament in the order that the ancient Hebrews read through the Old Testament. You might be surprised to find out that the Bible order that you have now is not the same order that it, had, that it has been in years past. So back when Jesus sat down with a Bible, it was not in a book form, it was in scrolls. And it took a different order, and so that's outlined here. And then when it comes to the New Testament, this is speculation, historical speculation of what order were the books written. James, perhaps the first book of the New Testament that was written. And so you get a chance to kind of read through. It might bring a different a different way of seeing things if you were to read that way. Again, if you've never read through the Bible before or you've never tried this before, I would highly encourage you, go to the 5x5x5. Five by five by five. That one's easy. It's, a, it's not taxing. It's easy for you to get through, and I would encourage you to take that. They're on the back table. Reading the Word every day 
will change how you think, will change how you act. We are blessed in this age today, 2023, 2024, we are blessed in a chapter of peace. I know we have turmoil within our city, but if we compare what life is like now versus what life was like 100 years ago, right here in our own city, very different. If we were to compare to what it was in the 1940s, very different. I don't know and I don't want to try to prophesy how much longer we get to enjoy this peace. I have no idea. There are certainly signs globally of unrest all over the world. I don't know if we will get to enjoy this peace for a long time. I pray that our children and our grandchildren will get to enjoy that peace. I pray that our Heavenly Father will send the Lord Jesus to come back before these things happen. But the truth of the matter is, as we look down through history and we listen to the testimonies of people that have gone before us, often they say things like, when they were in the midst of a trial or in the midst of, uh, midst of problems, they found peace in the Word of God. I submit to you that it's best that you not wait for the problem to come to try to find the peace. It's best that you are prepared before a problem comes to know where to go. For in the moment of a trial, your heart will go somewhere. Oh, how wonderful it would be that if you were already soaking in the Word, already spending habits, having habits of spending time in the Word, that when the trial came, your instant reaction was to go to the Word. Oh, that would be a great testimony for your life. And if I can repeat the words of Peter this morning, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, be holy, for he who called you is holy. Heavenly Father, this morning as we come into a new year, I pray that you would draw us to a life of holiness different than the world that's around us. I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts that causes us to see you as glorious and your salvation as our greatest treasure. Lord, I pray that we would see the allurements of sin as simply bait on a trap. We would not allow ourselves to be snared by them, but instead that we would fight sin, intentionally fight sin, we would be holy. Friend, this morning before I close, I want to ask you a question. Is this the year that you're going to be determined to follow Jesus? I want to ask a question this morning of you. Are you serious about following Jesus or is Christianity just something that you do? It's one of your habits. You come to church. Something comes up, maybe not. I wonder if you might make a priority this year. I'm not going to ask you to come to the altar and kneel. I will ask you to raise your hand, though. This year, 
I want it to be different. I've tried in the past and I've fallen, but this year I want it to be different. And by the grace of God and with His help, I want this year to be different. Dads, I want to raise my family. I want my children to follow Jesus. I want my grandchildren to love Jesus. Moms, I want to be a good testimony to my children. Young people, I don't care what mom and dad do. I'm going to do right. I wonder if that's you this morning. So I'm going to ask you, if you would like to resolve with me this year, 2024, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to spend time in the Word every day. Could I ask you to just raise your hand? I'm not going to call you out. Just raise your hand. I'm seeing hands all over the room. I'm encouraged by this. I resolve. Yeah, New Year's resolution. People say it won't work. Oh, I'm resolved. I'm different. This year I'm following Jesus. I'm going to fight sin. And I'm going to start that fight by washing my mind with the Word. And so, Father, I pray for my friends this morning. May we follow through on our resolution. Fight. Fight like our soul depends on it, because it does. Lord, thank you for the grace that you've bestowed upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I love you. So thankful.